people are capable of doing many things for love. What Grace Guajardo of Santiago, Chile did on February 7 of 2011 forced the evacuation of more than 300 people from a plane moments before takeoff. Authorities said she phoned in a false bomb threat to keep her boyfriend from flying off to a new job. I'm sorry, but I did it for love, Guajardo said after she was charged for making a false bomb threat. Her man, Rodrigo Gomez, had already boarded Iberia Flight 6830 for Madrid, planning to take a months-long job as a cruise ship waiter. Desperate that he was leaving, Grace admitted she called the airport from her cell phone, demanding that authorities tell Gomez his father was gravely ill. When that didn't work, she called back, alleging there was a bomb on the plane, authorities said. The plane was already taxiing down the tarmac when pilots parked it in a remote location where 312 people aboard were taken off and police with bomb-sniffing dogs meticulously searched the luggage. Meanwhile, records showed both calls were made from a cell phone that Gomez had left at home. Guajardo then confessed and was arrested. She did succeed in getting Gomez to stay in Chile. Yes, I'm sorry for what I did. It wasn't the best thing to do. But at least he's here, Guajardo said outside court. Gomez replied, I can't be angry. I have to support her. What she needs is love, nothing more. In the name of love, my high school friend gave up a full academic scholarship to the prestigious Duke University in the U.S. to attend the same university as his then-girlfriend. It was a less prestigious college, and he didn't have a full scholarship to attend the school. And as you can almost guess it, his girlfriend broke up with him the first semester of attending college together after she met someone else at the university. My friend may still be paying off the student debt he incurred, regretting that decision made in the name of love. As Mike Cosper writes, love makes people do crazy things. The stories we tell in literature and film are full of examples of the crazy things people will do for love. Love empowered Odysseus through madness and suffering, driving him desperately and longingly back towards home. Love makes James Potter stand in front of a killing curse to protect his wife and child and gives his wife the courage to do the same. Love sends Prince Philip through a forest of thorns and into war with a dragon to rescue Sleeping Beauty. It's the motive behind a thousand songs and poems. It's woven into the fabric of our universe because it's reflective of the very heart of God. Love is what sends Jesus into the humble estate of Mary's womb. It leads Him through His quiet life, His lively public ministry, and His agony at Golgotha. It was love for all people that compelled Him to the cross. As John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world. While we generally understand the emotion of love, the expression of that love in action comes in many different forms, ranging from the ridiculous, like calling in a bomb threat, to the admirable, like Odysseus' journey back home, to sacrificial and salvific, like what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But what does the Bible teach about love in action? That's what we want to study as we continue our sermon series titled Unshakable, as we study the book of 1 John together and learn how to build up a confident faith that will allow us to be unshakable in these challenging times. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John as we take a look at chapter 4, verses 7 to 19. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 19, as we draw out some biblical principles for love in action. I read now verses 7 to 8. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John begins this section in this letter by encouraging the Christian readers to love one another. And the reason we are to do so is because love is from God. That means those who love one another evidence that they are new creations in Christ as believers and that they have a personal intimate walk with God as they abide in Him. Those who do not exhibit loving one another, as verse 8 tells us, shows that they do not have a personal walk with God and they do not know Him intimately. But note that in the negative example, it does not say that those who do not love one another are not born of God, meaning that somehow they will lose or have lost their salvation if they do not exhibit love for one another. In these two verses, I want to point your attention to two phrases. Love is of God, and God is love. The stress of these verses is a reminder that the very essence, the very character of God is love, and love comes and emanates from Him. Since God's very essence is love, the implication is that every action of God is based on His love, from His command to how we are to live our lives, to His discipline and correction, it all comes from His love. This also means that God's perfect plan for our lives, however unique and challenging, is based on His unconditional love for each one of us. Simply put, God is the author of love. And as the author of love, He gets to define what actions and expressions constitute loving action. This is important to remember because generally we like to define love actions from a selfish perspective. Love is what makes me feel good, we say. Love is when I get some benefit from it, we think. It's only love when I'm not hurt in the process or when I'm not somehow inconvenienced. If I want something, I can get it as long as love is involved. We believe that love justifies everything, even if it goes against biblical teachings. And so we think, I can do everything and anything I want in the name of love, and no one should have any problems with it. But God says, hang on. I get a say in this because I'm the author of love, and I get to define its expressions and actions. So God says in the Bible, love and action through sexual intimacy is only to be expressed in the bounds of a covenanted marriage relationship. It's not a free-for-all because I'm the author of love. You may have the emotional feeling of what you think is love towards someone else, but for example, if you are a married person, then you are not to express that so-called love feeling in action in something like adultery. God has clearly defined love expressions and actions with boundaries that are set because He loves us and doesn't want us to get hurt. That's why we know the Scriptures. We will see that love actions include discipline and correction, just like parents lovingly correcting their children so that they will not get hurt and setting boundaries in their lives so that they are protected from people who intend to do them harm. We also see that God's defined expression of love and action is that He doesn't give us everything we want at the time that we want it. He knows that our short-sighted and selfish desires may not be good for us. But of course, instead of saying, thank you, God, for having our best in mind, we complain to God that He doesn't love us because He doesn't want to give us what we want now. And so, God, You don't love us. We need to remember that God is the author of love, and He gets to define its expression and action. And that is our first principle 
love in action, number one. God is the author of love. He gets to define its expressions and actions. God is the author of love. He gets to define its expressions and actions. Most of their vices are attempted shortcuts to love, writes John Steinbeck in East of Eden, a book full of characters who crave the love of a father, a brother, a lover, a son. The experience of full and satisfying love feels elusive and out of reach for Steinbeck's characters, so they often live and make decisions out of that longing. Their reaching for love sometimes produces gentleness and faithfulness, but often it manifests in resentment, selfishness, arrogance, violence, revenge, and murder. Most of our vices are attempted shortcuts to love. John Stark writes, I resonate with that, don't you? We serve others in order to feel loved and needed. We long to hear from the mouths of others, I don't know what i do without you, and we fear feeling disposable. So we make every effort to avoid being disposable, and we resent others when they don't take notice of our efforts. The actions of love that many express in this world seems to be attempted shortcuts to find and give love. But it is only superficial at best because that longing to give and receive love is centered upon the author of love, which is our Heavenly Father. It is only when we express love in the boundaries He has so clearly defined in the Bible that we will find true satisfying love and give genuine unconditional love. Now we're given an example of how this love in action is demonstrated in verses 9 to 11. Look with me. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In these verses, John gives us what is arguably the best example of pure and true love. It is demonstrated to each of us by the author of love, God Himself. This example is God, the Father, sending His one and only Son, His begotten Son, into the world to die for us with the singular purpose of giving people destined for eternal death, everlasting life. Let's unpack this ultimate expression of true love for mankind in these verses. First of all, the one who demonstrated love gave His most prized possession, His Son, Jesus Christ, God Himself. In the beauty of the triune God we believe in, it can be said that God gave both Himself as Jesus is God and gave His Son as the expression of love. There is no more a prized possession. If you declare to someone you love, I love you so much, you can have anything you want, just name it. Implied in that statement are a lot of unsaid exemptions. Even though you say you can have anything you want, if they ask for your house, you're not going to give it. If they ask for your only car, you're not willing to give that up. If they ask you for all of your money, you're not going to give it to them. If they ask you to give up your job, you won't do it because there are simply some things you and I are not willing to give up for love. How about something simpler? Are you willing to give up Netflix if the one you love asks you to do so? Are you willing to give up access to the internet? Are you willing to give up all television and movie shows, all music, all sports, all concerts if the one you love asks you to do so? Now, you may say yes because you profess your love, but in action you won't do it. How do I know? Because we aren't even willing to give up all of these things for 15 minutes 
just to spend time with the one we say we love with all of our hearts, the Lord God. And yet God was willing to give up His most prized possession, His Son, when He declared His love for all mankind. Imagine God gave up His own Son, His own life, for people who did not deserve it like you and me, just because He said He loves us. That's something amazing for us to meditate on and ponder. Second, from these verses, we see that the one who demonstrated true love for mankind gave up something unique, one of a kind, something that could not be replaced, something of which there is only one of it in the entire universe and only one of it in the space-time continuum of eternity, and it was God's begotten Son. The word translated begotten or one and only is from the Greek word monogenes, which emphasizes the unique and only one of its kind, that being Jesus. Jesus is God's one and only Son, as there are no others, for Jesus shares the very same divine nature as God because He is God. We are children of God, but that's through adoption through Jesus. So when God offered up His only Son to save us, there wasn't a spare, there weren't others. Many of us, when we express love, may be willing to give up our most prized possessions, but only if we have a spare or duplicate of it. I will give you one of my cars because you need it, because I have another one. I will lovingly let you live in my spare condo during your time of need because I have another home. I know that sometimes in our Asian culture, in certain situations, someone with multiple children will give one of their children to an unwed sibling to raise as her own child out of love. But how many of us would give up our one and only car to someone who is in need and be forced to take public transportation? How many of us would give up our one home to the homeless and live in a shared apartment as a sign of love? I think almost none of us would do this. We only give in love out of our excess and abundance. But God gave up Jesus, His one and only Son, to die for mankind, and He had no other children. This is a demonstration of His pure, true love for us. Third, we see that the one who demonstrated true love did so not for his own benefit, but only for the benefit of the recipients of his love. God didn't have to save us. God didn't need to send his son. The beneficiaries of this act of love are others, not God. Verse 9 says that he did so so that we might live. My friends, we were deserving of death and eternal separation from God. We were not deserving of any grace and mercy being shown to us. You know, we always clamor for justice and getting what we deserve. And because all have sinned, we deserve death. But instead, God's act of love through Jesus gave us life. To stress the point that the beneficiaries is someone else and not God, meaning that God got nothing out of this. In verse 10, it is stated that it is not us loving God or we somehow deserving of what Christ did. But instead, He loved us, and in the action of love became the propitiation or atoning sacrifice on our behalf for our sins. You see, God took the initiative to demonstrate His love. The Bible reiterates this truth in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, the Bible says, meaning while we were completely undeserving and unable to save ourselves, God made the first move. God loves us. 
not because we are attractive or deserving, but simply because He loves us. So He made the ultimate sacrifice, giving up everything, all His glory that He got in heaven, His life for us. The word propitiation means atoning sacrifice. And it carries with it the idea that only in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind would the holy God's rightful wrath be appeased and punishment no longer required and warranted. There was nothing we could do to appease the wrath of God and nothing we can offer to pay the price required. Only God could initiate and offer the solution for appeasement and only His offering of His Son would be sufficient to pay the price. So again, it's all on Him. Without His love, without His move, without His initiation, without His initiative, without His love in action, nothing happens. Let me give you this example. It's like if I wanted to buy a -a one-of-a-kind Michael Jordan sports card. There was only one of it in the entire world, and it was valued at $10 million. And the one who owned the card is rightfully angry at me because I lied to him, stole money from him, and constantly spoke badly of him to everyone. Do you think I have any hopes of getting that card? No way. First of all, I don't have that kind of money. And even if I did, that person has to be willing to part with it to sell that card. And even if he was willing to sell that card, would he sell it to me, his enemy? So the chances for me to get that card is pretty much zero. It would be an outstanding expression of love and forgiveness for that cardholder to one day, out of the blue, be willing to give me that one-of-a-kind sports card for free with no strings attached, even if I continue to speak ill of him and never return the money I stole from him and ask for forgiveness for my lies. But this is exactly what God did when He demonstrated His love. But instead of parting with a mere sports card, it was parting with His only Son, His most precious Son, for solely our benefit. This is truly the ultimate example of sacrificial love in action, demonstrated to mankind. And here we have our second principle for love in action, love in action number two. Love is sacrificially giving something to those who do not deserve it and cannot hope to attain it. Love is sacrificially giving something to those who do not deserve it and cannot hope to attain it. And that's why in verse 11, there is a charge for us that if God demonstrated this type of love and we are the recipients of this amazing, gracious love, then we should show the same type of sacrificial love to one another. Now look with me at verses 12 and 13. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. In these verses, John indicates that no one has ever seen God fully as God is spirit and we live on this side of heaven. But since God is love, our expression of love and action towards one another not only finds a fuller fulfillment of love, but it becomes tangible evidence of the very presence of God. Just like when a child emulates his parents' actions, mannerisms, thinking, and speech, we can begin to visualize who the parents are. Likewise, when Christians emulate the love of God to others, then the world can begin to see and visualize God and who He is. To further this point, John continues in verses 14 to 16. 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and He who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. Here John states that if we love one another, that we can testify to the world that God did in fact send His Son as the Savior of mankind because our sacrificial loving action to others would mimic the Father's love in sending His Son. And further, those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God gives further evidence of intimately walking with God and intimately knowing that God is love. John's purpose in these verses is to show the readers of his time and us today who didn't personally see Jesus Christ walk the earth that we can, in a similar sense, experience something comparable to what the apostles experienced when they saw and interacted with Jesus. You see, the apostles saw God when they saw God's Son, God Himself, in Jesus Christ. And therefore, as verses 9 to 11 tells us, since God's love is evidenced and manifested through His actions, as believers today, we can also see God through the same sacrificial love Christians show to one another as Christians are to be filled with God the Holy Spirit. My friends, the world is perplexed why God would send His one and only Son to die. Why would God do that? It doesn't make sense. It isn't just. It isn't fair. That one who did nothing wrong would have the sins of the world placed on Him. That's why we're drawn to a work salvation. Because in that situation, salvation is earned, and in our minds, it is fair. But a work's salvation does not save. That's why selfless, sacrificial actions of love that we do help the world understand why God would do such a thing. As His followers, we are a mirror of God's sacrificial love to the world. And here we have our third principle for love in action. Love in action number three. Our sacrificial love helps the world understand God's love for them. Our sacrificial love helps the world understand God's love for them. My friends, selfish acts of love can't really be explained. Why would followers of Christ want to forgive each other? There is no reason other than that Christ we follow did just that for us. Why would Christians want to love our enemies? Because our Lord did the same and died on the cross for the very people who nailed Him to the cross. How can we give up everything, all the comforts of this life, to perhaps move to another country to tell people about Jesus? Because Jesus sacrificially did the same and left heaven's glory to live and die on earth to provide and proclaim salvation for all. Matthew White shares, in my book, I tell the story of my love for bluebell ice cream. Many consider Bluebell ice cream to be the best in the U.S., but it isn't sold up here in Ohio. So I long for our trips back to Dallas to visit my parents or when we drive south to connect with my brothers in the Carolinas or Anne's sister in Tennessee. If you've ever tasted Bluebell, then you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say, I love that ice cream. But what does loving ice cream have to do with marriage? It makes the point that love can take on many forms. I can love ice cream, or I can love my dog. I can love music and love the Cleveland Cavaliers. Love, then, can have different meanings depending on the situation or context. As Matthew continues, 
when Anne was pregnant with our first child, she had a rather awkward craving one night. I can't remember if there was something in particular that sparked the desire, but we were sitting on the couch one evening when all of a sudden she said she wanted a turkey salad. Now, we're not just talking about any old turkey salad. This one had to be a turkey salad from Subway, and it had to have shredded lettuce. In fact, she told me that if the first Subway I went to didn't have shredded lettuce for whatever reason, then I'd have to find one that did. So I hopped in the car in search of a shredded lettuce turkey salad from Subway. Subway was not necessarily close to our house, so it was a bit of a task to respond to this request. I want to believe this was a very small example of what Jesus meant when He said, greater love has no one than this that He laid down His life for His friends. Now, certainly I wasn't laying down my life for my wife. I just went to get her a salad. But by sacrificing my time and putting myself aside, I was showing love to her and hopefully giving her a glimpse of Christ in me. My friends, we are giving the world glimpses of God through our sacrificial action of love to one another. Matthew continues, so let's go back to the subway story for one more minute. Envision this. I say to Anne, remember that time when I went to Subway to get you that shredded lettuce turkey salad? Why don't you run up to McDonald's and pick me up a cheeseburger just so we're even? That sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Sacrificial, unconditional agape love doesn't keep score. Agape is a love that gives, a love that does not demand or hold onto rights, but has the good of others at heart. My friends, a sacrificial, unconditional agape love for one another that doesn't keep score will help the world understand the love God has for them. I read now verses 17 and 18. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. In these verses, John is talking about a believer standing before the Lord at the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ, to give an account of his or her life for his eternal rewards. And the implied question is, when that time comes to give an accounting before the judge, will you be afraid to do so or not? And there are two reasons why we should not fear this judgment for all believers. The first reason is when genuine sacrificial love is lived out and shown in your relationship with God and with other people, then it evidences that you have lived your life in such a way that God is honored and it is God-pleasing. If this is the case, then fear would not be present because you can't wait to tell Jesus, the judge, the many things you have done for Him in His name. You can't wait to tell Him about the life you have lived in sacrificial love for one another. It's similar to two children when their parents are away. One child lovingly obeys the rules set for them when the parents are gone, while the other child intentionally takes advantage of the parents being away to do whatever he wants. Now, which child do you think fears the parents' return? And which child do you think anticipates their return? Of course, the obedient child will not fear his parents' return because he actually looks forward to being commended for how he has acted. While the disobedient child is probably dreading and in fact hiding in fear when the parents are unlocking the front door to return home because the time of reckoning is upon them. You and I know this to be true. 
We fear when we know we have something to hide and have not lived up to expectations. We would naturally feel guilty to have to meet the judge of our lives when everything is to be revealed. However, there is no fear, and we can even come boldly before the Lord in the day of judgment to share how we have lived our lives emulating God's love. Can you imagine the excitement of telling the Lord how you have emulated His love for you and demonstrated it to others? The second reason for why we as Christians do not need to fear the coming judgment before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ is because of what Christ lovingly did and demonstrated on the cross for us. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we become children of God, declared righteous. Therefore, when we stand before God, we stand before Him as redeemed people. There is no fear in perfect love, which is what has been exhibited to us on the cross. God isn't going to change the criteria of His unconditional love for us because it is in fact unconditional. So we will not lose our salvation once we place our trust in Jesus. There is no need to fear our eternal destiny. There is no need to fear the world and what it thinks about us because of the security of our salvation. So in that sense, fear is cast out. We can move away from the torment of doubt and wondering what will happen to us when we die because the love we exhibit evidences that we abide in Christ, that we are His children. And then in the climax of this section, it is noted in verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. Let that sink in. This is the climax. We love Him because He first loved us. My friends, there is no fear, because when we stand before the Lord, we stand before the One who loves us unconditionally. And we stand before the One whom we love because He first loved us and demonstrated that love on the cross. Children waiting for their parents to return home may know that they will receive a commendation or words of correction, but ultimately they know that their parents love them regardless. Why? Because their parents have demonstrated previously their love for their children. Likewise, when we stand before the Lord in judgment, there is no fear because we stand before the One who loves us unconditionally. Now, putting it all together, Love in action, number four. Love demonstrated on the cross and lived out ensures confidence when facing the ultimate judge. Love demonstrated on the cross and lived out ensures confidence when facing the ultimate judge. Dave Simons in his book, The Family Coach, tells this story. I took eight-year-old Helen and five-year-old Brandon to the mall in Hattiesburg to do a little shopping. As we drove up, we spotted a truck parked with a big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo. The kids jumped up in a rush and asked, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? Sure, I said, flipping them both a quarter, 25 cents, before walking to the mall. They bolted away, and I felt free to take my time looking for something I needed to buy at the hardware store. Now, if you don't know what it is, a petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure enthralled with the squirmy little critters while their mom and dad's shop. A few minutes later, I turned around and saw Helen walking along behind me. I was shocked to see she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognizing my error, I bent down and asked her, Honey, what's wrong? 
She looked up to me with those big, giant brown eyes and said, sadly, well, Daddy, the petting zoo cost 50 cents, so I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. She repeated the family motto. The family motto is, love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. But she had watched me and her mom do and say, love is action, for years around the house. She had heard and seen, love is action, and now she had incorporated into her little lifestyle. It had become part of her. Well, what do you think I did? Not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it. Because she knew the whole family motto, it's not love is action, it's love is sacrificial action. You see, love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefit accrues to someone's account. Love is for you, not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience that total family motto, love is sacrificial action. My friends, this is what Jesus demonstrated on the cross when He died for you and me. He demonstrated perfectly love is sacrificial action, and He knew He had to taste the sacrifice of death on our behalf to show that He loved us unconditionally. So remember these love and action principles. Number one, God is the author of love. He gets to define its expressions and actions. Number two, Love is sacrificially giving something to those who do not deserve it and cannot hope to attain it. Number three, our sacrificial love helps the world understand God's love for them. Number four, love demonstrated on the cross and lived out ensures confidence when facing the ultimate judge. My friends, this is why we can stand unshakable in these challenging times, because we can confidently live this life knowing we have a judge, advocate, Lord, Savior, and the person of Jesus Christ who loves us unworthy people with an unconditional love and demonstrated it on the cross. Let us therefore take the love we experienced in Christ and love one another to help the world understand God's love for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for showing us how love is to be expressed in action. When you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, it gives us the example and the desire to love one another. Father, we have failed in this regard. Would you forgive us? Help us to define love as you would define it and have exemplified it on the cross. Father, we desire to establish a relationship that is centered on love, not one of fear, because we know that you loved us, and because you loved us first, we love you in return. May our love for you deepen and grow more intimate as we think about what you did for us. Your gracious and merciful acts for us daily and on the cross reminds us of the type of love we are to express to you. Bless us, Lord, for studying your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.